Come on, Top Arrow. Roll out of bed, Cujo. You got a lot of work to do. You got a lot of work to do. Cotton gotta jump down, turn around and pick a bale a day. Jump down, turn around and pick a bale of cotton. Gotta jump down, turn around and pick a bale a day. Jump down, turn around and pick a bale of cotton. Gotta jump down, turn around and pick a bale a day. Pick, 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 pick. Me and my gal are gonna pick a bale of cotton. Me and my gal keep a picking all day. Me and my gal are gonna pick a bale of cotton. Me and my gal keep a picking all day. Oh Lordy, pick a bale of cotton. Oh Lordy, pick a bale a day. Pick a bale of cotton. That version is from Art and Paul, Art Podell and Paul Potash from a newly re-released CD featuring Art and Paul. I happen to have Art Podell on the line. Hi, Art. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Now, this is a very unusual CD. I got I get a lot of CDs in the mail. I put this in. I really enjoyed it. And I find out that it's over 50 years old. You were a folk uh, singer 50 years ago. I was a folk singer from, from as early as I can remember. That was the first music that attracted me. And the CD I just received, Art and Paul, are from two CDs that you released 50 years ago. Released on Columbia Records in 19, I think, 59 and 60 and 61, somewhere right in that era. We were just kids coming out of college, and uh, folk music was starting to bubble under. And there we were, smack in the heart of Greenwich Village, while everything was just starting to happen. Well, tell me about Pick a Bale of Cotton. Where did you find that song? How did you make that arrangement? Well, jump down, turn around, pick a bale of cotton. Paul and I were childhood friends. We actually met when we were in high school. Paul was a heavy into dramatics, into drama. I was heavy into playing the guitar and singing folk songs. And we decided to take every folk song we knew and to bring it to life dramatically. Um, we had absolutely no money. So we just sat nose to nose in a one-bedroom walk-up on the Lower East Side of New York and spent all of our time constructing the most complex arrangements we could possibly come up with 
with no goal in mind other than to please ourselves. What was the state of folk music back in 1958-1959? Okay, it was just bubbling under. Tom Dooley had hit in 1958, and that reminded the world that folk music was a viable method, a, a way of entertaining and making some money. But by 1958, we were talking about Greenwich Village on Sunday mornings at Washington Square, the little coffee houses, the big folk clubs hadn't really emerged yet. There were a couple. There was the Café Wa, where we played. With, and at the same time, if you want to know the state of folk music, Peter, Paul, and Mary hadn't even gotten together. Peter and Paul were both singing as solo acts at the Café Wa. In fact, uh, I was the one who gave Peter uh, a, a napkin with the name Mary Travers on it when he asked me if I knew any girls that could sing. Uh, uh, we were all friends. We were all singing for money that was passed around in the hat, and folk music was just starting to bubble. There were groups forming and people sitting around singing songs to each other, learning all of these new songs, songs that the Lomax family had dragged out of the Ozarks and out of Appalachia. Dylan hadn't even gotten to the village yet. Bob Dylan arrived in 1961. I think it was the same day that I left for California with Paul. But that was the state of folk music. We were all singing songs for each other. Uh, there was a smell of money way in the distance, but we were doing it to the love of it and uh, sharing our music with each other. Your version of Pick a Bale of Cotton, where did that come from? Where did, It didn't sound like any other version of P Pick a Bale of Cotton. Of course not, because Paul and I were two, two kids. Uh, Paul had a huge background in theater, Broadway, uh, acting, dancing. I had a background in just singing folk songs. I was singing songs from the labor unions. I was singing songs from uh, the Lincoln Brigade following Pete Seeger. We just put the two of us together and we decided to turn every song we did into a one-act play that would bring the meaning of the song out and uh, dramatize it. And that's what we did. If you listen to Pick a Bale of Cotton, that's what it is. It's a dramatic rendition of an old, old uh, Negro a work song. I'm speaking with Art Podell, and together with Paul Potash, Art and Paul, they made two albums for Columbia Records back in 1959, 1960. How did you get signed to Columbia Records? Oh, that was just, you know, things like that happen just out of, uh, it's, it's almost magic. Uh, I, knew, I knew somebody that knew somebody, and... Uh, we auditioned for them, and before we knew it, we were up at the offices of Columbia Records. What was happening was folk music was just starting to happen, and the record companies were looking for acts that they, they could do it. The record companies had no idea what folk music was supposed to sound like. The head of, uh, the head of Columbia's music department at the time was Mitch Miller. And, I mean, Mitch had no idea what was going on in the village, but when he heard us, he said, well, maybe this will work. Uh, and so... Columbia signed us because we were very different from everybody else. Did you go to the village to become a folk singer? We got, as soon as Paul and I got together after, I think it was right after Paul got out of the army and out, uh, Paul came and visited me. Uh, I was still living up near Columbia University where I'd been going to school. And uh, Paul and I uh, arranged our first folk song arrangement. Uh, just for the fun of it. And when we realized what we had, we said, we can't stay here. We both packed our bags and moved down to the village. We found the cheapest place we could find. 
which is now called the East Village or Soho, but back then it was called the Lower East Side. We found a one-bedroom walk-up apartment on, on Third Avenue and Fifth Street, uh, where we had a share of bathroom with four other apartments. And uh, we sat there and we crafted an act. And we would go out every night after we'd finished rehearsing and we'd walk across, which was only a few blocks away, and walk into coffee houses and start singing. That's what we did. Your first album was called Songs of Earth and Sky from 1960 yep. and Hanging, yep. Drinking and Stuff from 1961. How did the albums do? Uh, the albums didn't do that well. We had enormous, enormous response from, uh, from the, our fellows in the folk music business. The Smothers Brothers just fell in love with us. Uh, Peter, Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul, and Mary and Noel fell in love with us. Theodore Bikel fell in love with us. But we never really, we never really made a splash in the public. We were so different from everybody else. And, uh, uh, and the, the record companies, you know, they, they rode with us for a while, but eventually they figured, well, if these guys are not selling that much, let's just drop them. But over the years, people have just come to us and said that we inspired them. I get, I, to this day, I run into folk singers that say that they bought our albums and they listened to our albums and we inspired them. I had, uh, oddly, this is a, a real funny one, uh, several years ago before he died, Tim Hauser, who, who was the originator and crafter of uh, Manhattan Transfer, came to me. He said, did you know that I used to come to the village and watch Art and Paul every night? I took notes. He said, he's he said, I took notes. He said, it's not for you guys. I don't think I could have had the idea for, to do what I did with Manhattan Transfer. Um, we, were, we were kind of groundbreakers, but uh, we didn't know it at the time. We were just two kids just doing what we thought was fun. Uh, we eventually broke up in California. Um, uh, Paul wanted to be a serious actor. and I was signed uh, to Henry Mancini as a songwriter, and I, I had a decent career back then writing music for the Smothers Brothers, and I wrote with Rod McEwen and a whole bunch of other people of the era and did pretty well. So Art and Paul just did its act, I guess served our purpose, but uh, we've never not had the loyalty of our friends in the music business who, uh, who well, constantly reminded us of how important we were to their, to, to their development. So for that, I'm grateful. And then, Columbia decided to re-release the albums. Uh, it was just a, like a, a gift from, from heaven. I forgot to ask you, where is Paul? Where is Paul? Paul is in Olathe, Kansas. He's chosen his own life path. He's, uh, he's a very religious fellow right now and uh, very involved in his church. And uh, Paul and I were childhood friends, and we still are. We love each other and uh, talk often. I'm speaking with Art Podell. Well, let me play a song from the just re-released CD. Uh, why did you choose King Huzai as a song? Um, well, I had had a very, very strong background in Hebraic music. Um, I was a, I was headed for the seminary. I was I was headed for maybe a life in in the clergy in the Jewish clergy in the, as a rabbi when this whole thing started. It's just that music overshadowed it so much. And it was so much a part of my life that I just chose that. I chose that direction. But uh, King Buziah, which is uh, by Yimanuzi Yahu, is a very was a very very popular song among all of the the Hebrew schools and the Hebrew summer camps that I attended. So 
I taught it to Paul. And uh, we actually performed that song on uh, NBC television as a young artist. That was one of our first TV appearances. Sam Levinson had a show called The Talent Scouts. And we were one of the first uh, acts on it. We sang King Uzziah. Let's play Art and Paul. Here's King Uzziah. King Huzaya from Art and Paul from a just re-released CD. Actually, it's not a CD. It's it's only available uh, digitally. And and why did it take fifty years to release Art? You know, that's a question that you're just going to have to. I, I I'm scratching my head. Um, there are there were several people in the re-release business and folk music business uh, who've been responsible for a lot of re-releases. Remember, I was one of the original members of the New Christian Minstrels, and my name kept popping up uh, here and there among these people that were, you know, uh, promoting re-releases. And one of them must have stumbled across Art and Paul. I think I know who it was. Uh, it's a fellow by the name of Tom Pickles who was responsible for a ton of re-releases from the folk era. And uh, he was a big fan of Art and Paul, and he brought it to them and said, you know, this is something that might, uh, might, might, might tickle people who are, who are listening to, to folk music these days. And they listened to it, and they said, you know, this is a hidden gem. And I, I guess after all of these years, I can call it a hidden gem because uh, I don't think I could recreate it now if I tried. Um, it was so complex and so uh, so intricate, the arrangements we did. I certainly do enjoy it. I, I, it reminded me of a movie I just watched uh, called uh, Once, Upon, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it sounded like the soundtrack to a Clinton Tarantino movie. Oh, my goodness. I've never heard it. 
<laughs> that's that's a unique that's a unique appraisal. I wouldn't have never I would have never thought about it. I'm gonna I'm gonna think about that. Uh, yeah, let him know. Well, Art, Art, let me. Did you know Pete Seeger at all? I met Pete once in Washington Square, and he showed me how to frail on the banjo. And uh, that's my claim. That's my claim with Pete Seeger. We never really had a, a, a strong relationship. We left. We left the uh, the East Coast and moved out to the West uh, uh, when Pete was just starting to, you know, hang right, come down to the village more and more. Yeah. Yeah. Pete Yarrow became a a a real good friend of Pete uh, all through the years. Peter and I have been close friends for years and years. Were you surprised when Peter and Paul and Mary became the number one band in the country? Well, here's the funny story about Art and Paul. And uh, uh, this one you got to almost sit down for. Peter brought Puff the Magic Dragon to Art and Paul before Peter, Paul, and Mary were formed. Just when Peter, Paul, and Mary were forming, because uh, their manager thought it was all about marijuana and stuff. So Art and Paul performed Puff the Magic Dragon. Uh, across the United States for a good year before Peter, Paul, and Mary decided to record it. Peter said, you can sing it, but you can't record it because we didn't reserve the right to record it. There's actually a YouTube video, if you go on YouTube, of Art and Paul singing Puff the Magic Dragon at a concert in Boulder, Colorado, almost two years before Peter, Paul, and Mary released it. And Peter and I laugh about that uh, uh, a lot every time uh, I, I, I see him and talk to him. I wrote a, a short piece about that uh, in, a, in a periodical that I write for out here in California. Art Podell is on the line, and he just has a brand new CD out that is uh, re-released. I keep on saying a CD, but I it's this time of age. It's available digitally for the first time in 50 years. Well, that, 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 that's because we made up a bunch of CDs for radio stations with the blessings of Columbia Records. Right, that's how I got it. And and yeah. the music, I mean, it, it sounds dated, but it sounds, like you say, very intricate. It sounds like you guys are having a lot of fun. Well, I'll tell you something. I don't know of anybody that's taken that much time with any single arrangement. We would literally sit nose to for, nose for months over every arrangement and uh, try to make it, uh, like I said before, try to turn it into a one-act play. Now, these were legitimate folk songs. These were the songs that Alan Lomax collected. Was there a fight between uh, people who wrote their songs and people who did uh, traditional folk songs in the 60s? Well, I think you've hit upon something that's a very interesting subject. If you saw the movie, uh, the Lewin Davis movie, uh, that's really what the issue was. We were singing folk songs that were traditional folk songs. It wasn't until people like Tom Paxton, Bob Dylan came along and started writing original music that the money in the record business started to take real notice. Because once you had songs that were available for copyright publishing, there was money there. And those were the people that ended up uh, with uh, much bigger record contracts. Art and Paul, we were just doing the traditional folk songs. And yes, the ownership of the songs was the Lomax family and the publishing companies that, uh, that, that, that controlled that music. We had a couple of originals. The song Little Pooh was a song that Paul and I wrote. Uh, actually, it was Paul's song. I added a little something to it. There's uh, Song of Time, 
which was written by a friend of ours in the village, and that was an original song. But by and large, the music that we sang was traditional folk music. From that point of view, I can understand why record companies uh, would not be that interested financially in it because there was no payoff in the publishing. That came a little, just a very little bit later uh, when uh, some of the groups started singing original folk songs. We used to make a joke in the village like, uh, you know, somebody just wrote a folk song that was five years, 500 years old uh, because it sounded like it was 500 years old. But uh, it wasn't until people like Tom Paxton came along and Bob Dylan where the money, they, the record companies really smelled the money because there was publishing money there. And that's really where the big money was in folk music as it evolved. Art Pardell is on the line. South Florida has a tide of folk music, and uh, there was some coffee houses down here in the 60s. Traced back to, uh, from what I understand, the first folk hit in this in Greenwich Village was from, um, fr- uh, not Fred Neal, but uh, Vince Martin, Cindy O. Cindy. Did- Vince Martin, Cindy O. Cindy. I, 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 I communicated with Vince. Vince and I knew each other real well, and I don't know, I don't know if Vince is still out there, but... Uh, we're, we we've touched we we've touched every now and then. I'm on the west west coast. Yeah, when as soon as you mentioned South Florida, you talk about Vince Martin and Fred Neal, two of the greatest greatest people in uh, in folk music. In fact, I host a radio show just like you do out here on the west coast, KPFK FM. We're a Pacifica station. I host a folk music show out here, and I play Fred Neal's music often. I understand there's a new book that's coming out uh, on Fred Neal by Peter Neff and. Bobby Ingram, who was good friends with Fred Neal here locally, just recently passed away. And uh, yes, Vince Neal, I think, passed away last year. So, I mean, when it comes down to it, I'm so glad that you're still here representing your music. Well, I'm still here. I'm still kicking. You know, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know why some of us choose to hang around and some of us, you know, leave us leave early. But uh, yeah, a lot of folks from that era are starting to drop off. I'm speaking with Art Bodell, and when Art was a young man, Art and Paul was a popular folk duo in the Greenwich Village. He was a young man. <laughs> That's true. You sounded great. Do you still sing? I still sing. I still perform. I write columns for local periodicals. I write columns for Folkworks magazine. If you want to read some of the stories that I read about Art and Paul and about the old days in folk music, uh, I'm uh, published uh, monthly in folkworks.org. And I have a radio, a radio show like you. I, I'm a rotating host on, on Roots Music and Beyond on KPFK FM, uh, Los Angeles. Let me ask you a, a couple more questions. Just I'll sure. mention some names and you tell me uh, about them. Dave Van Ronk. You knew Dave Van Ronk. Yep, Dave Van Ronk I didn't know. Dave Van Ronk was one of the one of the first people in the village that I heard play the guitar and said to myself, I'll never be able to do that good. <laughs> uh, there, were, there were two guitarists in the village that uh, just absolutely astounded me, uh, Dave Van Ronk and Dick Rosmini. And Dick Rosmini uh, was the guy who played on all the Art and Paul albums along with me. There were just two guitars on those albums, myself and Dick. Uh, but yeah, I knew Dave Van Ronk very well. Dylan was part of not only original songwriters, but he created a protest movement along with Phil Oaks and and that type setting. But that was after you were there, right? That was that was after I was there. The funny thing about it is, I'm pretty sure that Bob Dylan and I crossed paths. I think I left. Paul and I left for the West Coast 
I think if, if it wasn't the day Bob Dylan arrived, it must have been the week he arrived, because his description of coming to the Greenwich Village and walking into uh, uh, Izzy Young's Folklore Center uh, matches my experience of walking into Izzy Young's Folklore Center in the dead of winter on the same year, the same month, and saying goodbye to Izzy before we before we left for the West Coast. And I don't know if Dylan was in the store at the same time as me, but we were really two ships that really passed each other in the night. Arch Podell, I want to thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. I want to play one more song, Devilish Mary. Do you remember recording that? Yes, I remember everything we did. We worked so hard on every arrangement. Uh, every one of them were, were dramatic pieces. We didn't, we didn't take music with reverence. We 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 took we took the music and turned them into one act plays, little Broadway shows. That's that's what we did. This was another song collected by John and Alan Lomax. You never met the Lomaxes, did you? Yes, I did. Uh, I was a Columbia student at Columbia University, and Alan Lomax was a regular uh, hanger arounder at, at Columbia. And so I would meet Alan up at Columbia, and I would meet him down the village, and we became uh, not, not close friends, but we knew who each other were, and we, we'd go out for coffee together. And yes. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the call and the attention and playing the music, and uh, I hope you love every bit of the music we sang, because we had we poured more love into that music than I think I've poured into anything. Here's Devilish Mary from Art and Paul. Well, I went to town one day and aged to court a fair young lady. Inquired about her name and age. Her name was Devilish Mary. Prettiest girl in all of the world and her name was Devilish Mary. Prettiest girl in all of the world and her name was Devilish Mary. Prettiest girl in all of the world and her name was Devilish Mary. Miss Mary, can I have your hand? No younger are we getting. She knocked me down, dragged me to the church. Strange way to go to your wedding. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah, Lord, Lord. Prettiest girl in all of the world in England was devilish Mary. Well, we hadn't been married about a day or two before we ought to have been parted. She dragged me across the old threshold And then my trouble had started Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, Lord, Lord Prettiest girl in all of the world Her name was Devilish Mary She washed my clothes with old soap suds Scrubbed my back with switches Mm-hmm She swore right at the very start She's gonna wear my britches yeah, yeah, Lord, Lord, prettiest girl in all of the world, and her name was Devilish Mary. Prettiest girl in all of the world, 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 and her name was Devilish Mary. Now if I ever get married again, it'll be for love, not for riches. About two feet tall, so she can't wear my bridges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 